We're taught in school that the French Revolution was a beautiful turning point in the world for democracy, human rights, and freedom. But those who study history know that history is written by the winners. And so today we're going to look at what actually happened in the French Revolution and why it's so important for our understanding of the end times. Hey everybody, welcome to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander, and as usual, I'm your host, and thanks so much for being with me today. We are jumping into some deep things today, so make sure you have your seatbelt ready and maybe a snack. But if you haven't (laughs) subscribed yet, make sure you go to my website. That way we can stay in touch regardless of what may happen on various platforms. I never know. I just like to be safe because you know how they are. They're very sensor happy. They like to pull the trigger and ban people, especially when you start talking about things that Um, they're not written in the history books. You have to really dig for these things. And today we're certainly going to dive into that. We're going to get into some very deep things. I hope you're ready. I hope you like to take notes or I hope you like to research. I hope you like to learn because we're going to get into some very deep things. We're going to look at a lot of history. We're going to do some reading. Uh, We're going to look at various books and just see what all this is about because today's topic is the French Revolution. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, you have some catching up to do for sure, but we have looked at, in this series so far, we looked at the Millennial Kingdom. The first 10 episodes of this series were looking at all the elements having to do with the Millennial Kingdom, since that's really one of the biggest topics for end time studies, is when is the Millennial Kingdom? And if you're very clear on that, again, you don't have to know everything when it comes to the end times. Certainly, you know, I don't think we can know everything, but if you know enough to discredit certain false theories, then you won't be deceived. And so in the first 10 episodes of this series, we looked at the Millennial Kingdom. Now, ever since then, we've been opening up the books of Daniel and Revelation. And we're kind of ping-ponging between the two of them because really, if you were with me in the previous episodes, you realize and you know that the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel are very related. You can't understand Revelation unless you study the book of Daniel. And so we're using both of these books in tandem with one another and looking at various things like the time prophecies. And, you know, last week we looked at the two witnesses. And that's what really prompted me to create this episode. Initially, actually, this was going to be part of the previous episode, but that would have been way too long. And I realized that this actually deserves its own spotlight because it is quite important. The the art of war and the French Revolution. You'd be surprised how related the two things are and why they're related. It's a it's a fascinating discussion. So I hope to make it fascinating for you. I hope to uh, spark your curiosity, to pique your interest, and for you to do your own homework after this. But last week, we could look at the two witnesses. And again, dispensationalism and all these futurist ideas that rely on a very fleshly, worldly interpretation of the Bible. They read the two witnesses as two literal people that are going to be in literal Jerusalem prophesying that they're going to be killed, uh, you know, and then resurrected for three, th- after three days. But we understood from the book of Daniel and other places that the time prophecies in both Daniel and Revelation aren't literal days, but actually years. They're prophetic days, which are equivalent to a year. And so if that's the case, the two witnesses span 1,260 years. So it's not two literal people But actually, it's symbolic for the Word of God, prophesying and testifying under the persecution of the little horn power, the Antichrist power, the first beast from the sea, 
which is in John, which correlates to the little horn power in Daniel. And we'll look at more of this in detail in future episodes when we look at the beasts in Daniel and the world powers and things like that. But don't forget you have a, uh, I'll put it in the links, but the first link is usually going to be the end times prophetic timeline that I created. It's a nice little sheet where it's again, it's like a Google sheet. You can access it's visual so you can see all of the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation com- you know, compared to one another and you can see how they all relate to each other. It's really, truly fascinating. And I find it very useful uh, to see everything visually outlined like that. So if you find that useful, then check it out. It's a free resource. But that's going to be there as well. So 1260 years, this 1260 year period, there's a lot of things going on. Daniel mentions 1260 years many times in context with the Antichrist power. And John mentions 1260 years, a period. Now they're written in different ways. Some are written, you know, three years prophetically. Some are written 42 months prophetically. Some are written 1260 days prophetically. All those are equivalent time periods. And in this case with the two witnesses was 1260 days. But either, either case, it's all pointing to the same period of time, which was the time period of papal dominance, the papacy dominating Europe and the world and basically making the, de- the sanctuary, which is the plan of salvation, the gospel, making that desolate with all of its blasphemous teachings that are still continuing today. And we'll get more into these in a future episode when we really unpack Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots. But Today's episode, we're looking at the French Revolution, and that's going to be connected to the two witnesses, because the two witnesses were killed after the 1260-year period. So if we know that's a year, year-based year period, and we know that that period matches all these other periods talking about the Antichrist power, and we've identified the Antichrist power over and over again, we haven't gotten even into the meat and potatoes of the Antichrist power, which will be Mystery Babylon. So you can see exactly that I'm not making anything up, if this is news to you that the papacy is the Antichrist, um, then I'm not making it up. It's really based in history and it's based in scripture. And there is there are mountains of evidence to support this. So ultimately, we haven't even gotten to the mountains of evidence, but we looked at the abomination of desolation. We looked at the daily. We looked at some things in Daniel. And we looked at the two witnesses. They all point to the same thing. It's all the same thing. And so... All roads lead to Rome, right? That's the, the proverb we all know. And it's it's really true. All roads do lead to Rome. The more you dig in history, they truly, they truly do lead there and not in a favorable way. But ultimately, the two witnesses were killed in 1798. Now, where do I get that number? Well, because the word of God, the two witnesses represents the word of God. And they were symbolic for the word of God, basically testifying and ultimately getting killed for three and a half years. We know that the papacy got a mortal wound in 1798. And I'll keep repeating these things. We haven't gotten too much into what happened historically there, but basically the Pope was arrested. Uh, Napoleon took over Europe for a short period of time. And it seemed, keep that in mind, it seemed that the papacy received a mortal wound politically. Remember, beasts are systems. Okay, they're not actual beasts. They're not people. Their kingdoms and powers and political systems. So the papacy was a religio-political power. And for the Pope to be arrested and for the papacy to lose dominance, that was a mortal wound. But it seemed like a mortal wound because obviously the papacy is still here. So this is part of the the puzzle here of of what we're going to be looking at today. But the papacy received a mortal wound in 1798, and it started in 538 
AD. That's when it was officially, when it officially came to power. And again, we'll look more at this in a future episode, but that's 1260 years exactly. Now in 1798, that's when the French Revolution happened. That's when atheism was created. That's when Bibles were burned and banned for three and a half years. And then after that, there was sort of a resurgence, a revival in America and across Europe with missionary work, with Bible colleges, Bible clubs, all kinds of other things. And so the prophecy of the two witnesses stands firm. They were prophesying for 1260 years, right? In sackcloth, they were humble, they were trotted underfoot. They were killed for three and a half years during what I just explained with the French Revolution, and then they were resurrected. And so it all points to this persecuting power, which was the papacy for the 1260 years. And those 1260 years ended in 1798 because that's when the Pope received, I should say the papacy received the mortal wound for the Pope being arrested and basically the the Vatican kind of being shut down for a little bit. And so what we have to, to reconcile this with is that in Revelation 17, we looked at this also in the last episode, it says that the two witnesses were killed by the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit. And so this is this is a very fascinating detail because now we can pinpoint when the beast out of the bottomless pit arises. It arises in 1798. But wait a minute. The beast, the beast in uh, Revelation 17 hasn't happened yet. It's the future church-state union where the woman is riding the beast. The woman is an apostate church. Remember that. And the beast is a political system, and obviously the beast, the beast in Revelation 17 is very reminiscent of the first beast that John saw from the sea. The first beast was the one that ruled for 1260 years, the papacy, the church-state union, which basically was officialized in 538 AD, that continued through the Dark Ages, persecuting people, Inquisition, Crusades, all those, all those different things, into 1798. So the woman is riding the beast. It's a church-state union. This hasn't happened yet that the kings of the earth will give all their power to. That's the future we're headed towards. But that future, this is the important part that a lot of people don't understand or, or miss. The woman who's riding the beast, that beast came out of the bottomless pit. Wait a minute. The beast that came out of the bottomless pit killed the two witnesses. So that means the woman riding the beast, this system, this future system, this church union state, this neo-fascist, neo-nationalist, uh, Christian nationalist, fake Christian, it's not real true Christianity, that dominionist type of system, that theocracy, that started in 1798. But how is that possible if the papacy received a mortal wound? Well, that's what we're going to unpack today. That's the interesting part of today's conversation, among many other things. But basically, we know that Revelation 17 is the woman riding the beast, and that's a political system. It's a union. It's the culmination of all these Babylonian empires. Mystery Babylon, mother of harlots. And we see through Daniel, we we see through John, all of these different iterations of essentially the same thing, which is the Babylonian system. And it will culminate in a final relapse of a church-state union that has control over the world. Now, if you don't believe that, if that sounds really fantastical to you, I would encourage you to stick around and I would encourage you to really pay attention to the next coming episodes that we'll look at because there's a lot of things happening 
behind the scenes, and not even necessarily even behind the scenes, but they're happening, but people aren't paying attention. And the reason they're not paying attention is because their eyes are on Israel. What's happening in Israel? Israel, 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 look at the third temple. Here's the carrot, follow the carrot. And so why is that important? Well, if you've been with me for the last couple episodes, at least, you know, because I've said it pretty much constantly, that this whole dispensational teaching or futurist teaching of we have to watch Israel and what Israel's doing, this is a distraction. It's not Bible prophecy. It is a fleshly, literal way of reading the Bible to get your eyes off of spiritual realities that are taking place. And it started in the Counter-Reformation, which was like 500 years ago. The Protestants all identified the papacy as the beast. The, the beast in John, the beast in Daniel, the 1260-year beast, the first beast, they identified the beast correctly. Now, that was a problem because the beast was starting to lose control because of that. And so they had to switch their tactic. They had to switch their tactic from being overtly controlling through the military and just suppressing everybody to educating people differently because they couldn't control the Protestant Reformation through military or, or political power, especially with America being born, and that's another topic for a future time. But so they started the Counter-Reformation. They started the Jesuit order to educate people against it. It's called learning against learning. That's something you should look into. But the Jesuits were created as a military, political, espionage slash propaganda arm of the Vatican. And if you know anything about the Jesuits, then you know history. So today, that's what we're going into. We're going to be focusing on the French Revolution specifically. We're also going to look at what the purpose of the French Revolution was. We have a lot of reading to do. Some fascinating things I want to get into. We're also going to look at The Art of War, a book that is very much touted today, especially with Trump and, you know, everything that's been going on in the last couple of years. The Art of War, everybody's reading The Art of War, and they don't realize it's very interesting history, to say the least. But we're going to look at that, and it sounds like these two things have nothing to do with each other, but you would be surprised. And that's what my goal is today, is to surprise you a little bit. But the French Revolution happened from 1789 to 1799. And we know that in 1798 is when the papacy received the mortal wound, fulfilling the prophecy in Revelation. But basically what happened was this. The monarchs used to rule Europe. It was a royalty slash monarch system, kingdoms. And that was a problem, especially for the Jesuits, because most of the monarchs had banned them. And they were loyal to either Protestantism some form of Protestantism or Orthodox Christianity, or I should say Catholicism. And so this was a real problem. And that's why we're going to see the connection between the French Revolution and the Jesuits. But I want to look at the ideals behind the French Revolution, because we often are told that the French Revolution was this turning point in history for human rights and democracy and freedom and all these beautiful things, or I should say seemingly beautiful things, that we don't really understand what the actual values of the French Revolution were, what were the, who were the people behind it, what was their thinking, and what's the goal? What's the goal of the French Revolution? Was it really just to free people up, or is there something much more sinister going on? And as you can tell, it's going to be the latter. But I want to jump to a few sources. And this first one's called The History of Europe from the Commencement of the French Revolution. It's a, uh, it's a book 
And I'm going to try to read it here. If you're watching this, then, you know, the, the text is a little small because the formatting on these pages are really sloppy, so I have to zoom out. But either way, I want to read this to you. It's about the goddess of reason. Shortly after, a still more indecent exib- exhibition took place before the assembly. The celebrated prophecy of Father Beauregard was accomplished. The goddess introduced at the convention, without modesty, was usurping the place of chapter 10, Holy of Holies. Hebert Chalmette, and their assembly as 1793 societies appeared at the bar and declared that God did not exist and the worship of reason was of to be substituted in his head. Sorry, the writing is really small here. A veiled female in into the arrayed in blue drapery was brought into the assembly and Chalmette, taking her by the hand, said, Mortals, cease to tremble before the powerless thunders of a god whom your fears have created. Henceforth acknowledge no divinity but reason. I offer you its noblest and purest image. If you must have idols, sacrificed only, sacrifice only to such as this. Wow. So pagan idolatry at its finest. When letting, when letting fall the veil, he exclaimed, fall before the august senate of freedom, the veil of reason. Ah, the same time the goddess appeared personified by a celebrated beauty, the wife of Mamoro, a printer, known in more than one character to most of the convention. Now, I believe she was a prostitute, um, but that's something to look into. The goddess, after being embraced by the president, was mounted on a magnificent car and conducted amidst an, an immense crowd to the Cathedral of Notre Dame to take the place of the deity. So pretty pretty blasphemous things that are happening here in the French Revolution. There she was elevated on a high altar and received the adoration of all the present people while the young women, her attendees, whose alluring looks already sufficiently indicated their profession, i.e. their prostitutes, retired into the chapels around the choir. This is in Notre Dame, where every species of licentious and obscenity was indulged in without control, with hardly any veil from the public gaze. To such a length was this carried that Robespierre afterwards declared that Chalmette deserved death for the abhorrent things, the abominations he did, he permitted on the occasion. So what's what's going on here? So basically, the French Revolution, they propped this prostitute and basically idolized her as the goddess of reason. We don't have a god. We have reason as our god. And here's our personification of reason. And they went to Notre Dame. They basically had orgies. And I mean, it's just really blasphemous stuff, really crazy things. So this is the kind of stuff that the French Revolution stood for. And and we have to use discernment when we think about democracy or freedom or all these you know ideals that supposedly the French Revolution started when in reality, it was a sharp move away from God. Now, they have this thing called the Declaration of Human Rights. Let's see, what's it called? The Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. And if you're listening to this, you can look it up. But basically, I pulled this up on Wikipedia. It says, The Declaration of Rights of Man and of the Citizen, set by France's National Constituent Assembly in 1789, is a human civil rights document from the French Revolution. Gosh, it sounds so inspiring. Inspired by Enlightenment philosophers. Hmm, I wonder what they believe. The Declaration was a core statement of the values of the French Revolution and had a significant impact on the development of popular conceptions of individual liberty 
and democracy in Europe and worldwide. Gosh, if you just read this paragraph and that's it, you would have think this is the most brilliant thing that happened since whatever. Now, I want to take your attention really to, because this is what it tells you, but I want you to take your attention to the picture. And again, if you're listening to this, then um, let's see if I can zoom in. Yeah, kind of hard to zoom in. Okay, so if you're listening to this, just look up the picture for the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. It's it's this picture of basically the the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's it's very clear the imagery that they're doing here. So it's a like these two tablets where they're writing their own law, right? They're they're basically rewriting the law. Who's on top though? Now, if you know anything, if you know your dollar bill, if you know anything about anything, let me put it that way. This is a pretty obvious symbol. There's a triangle with an eye and it's glowing white light. Now you tell me who that is. Is that God? No, it's not. It's their God. Their God is Lucifer and he's the light bringer. He's the one that enlightens them and brings them truth when in reality, it's really just nothing but lies. But He's their God, and that's who they're serving. Obviously, he's at the top of this declaration. Now, they're writing, they're rewriting the law here. They have some angels, who knows what, you know, that's all about. We know that the devil and his demons masquerade as angels of light. Now, in the middle of this, you can't really see what it is, but this is a fasce. It's a Roman fasce, and it's it's a type of structure, and we're going to read about this and what it means, because the fasci, or fasce, They're basically symbols of dominance and power. So what is all of this really saying? What it's saying is, we are our own gods. This is the lie from the Garden of Eden. We are our own gods. We we don't need God. We have our own reasoning. And of course, who is that from? We know who. And we also see, by the way, you can't really see this. I don't know if you can see it very well, but it's this little... I've zoomed in a little bit. It's this little, it's it's all, you know, this is occult stuff, guys. You know, you have to look deep into these things. You can't just, you know, pass it over. But there's an Ouroboros behind this tablets. And if you look a little closer, right in the middle, right in the bottom middle, or I should say top middle, actually, an Ouroboros, which is a snake eating its own tail. Now, if you know anything about that, that's also a satanic occult symbol. And... Again, pointing to this reality that you don't need God, you can be your own God. You are you are self-sustaining, which is absolutely a lie. We need God for every breath that we take. But now I want to take your attention to the secret symbol of, of the Lincoln Memorial, because it has the same thing, it has these Roman fasci. Let's see what this is all about. While distracted by myths about faces in hair and letter-signing hands, many visitors miss the true meaning of the memorial and the ubiquitous symbol that carries that meaning. Instead of being hidden somewhere inaccessible, the symbol is deceptively obvious. Right there under Abraham Lincoln's hands, the symbol is so overlooked that even when pointed out, many observers will not recognize it. I wonder if that's by design. The symbol is that of the fasces, or fasci, a bundle of rods bound by a leather thong. Repeated throughout the memorial, the fasces reveal the higher meaning of the Lincoln Memorial and the way the memorial's designers meant to honor Abraham Lincoln. What do the fasces represent? Hmm, let's find out. In the ancient times, fasces were a Roman symbol of power and authority. Not much has changed, has it? A bundle of wooden rods and an axe bound together by leather thongs. Fasces represent 
that a man held imperium or executive authority, i.e. you are your own God, exercising imperium, a Roman leader could expect his orders to be obeyed, could dole out punishment, and could even execute those who disobeyed. The fasces he carried symbolized his power in two ways. The rods suggest punishment by beating, the axe suggests beheading. On its surface, the fasces imply power, strength, authority, and justice. So these are embedded in the Lincoln Memorial. They're in the um, Declaration of the Rights of the Human Citizen. What do they say? They're basically saying, listen, we are sovereign. We are our own gods, and you have to obey. Whether you, if you obey or, or if you don't obey, we're going to execute you. We're going to kill you. We're going to execute our power. We have power. Is that power coming from God in a godly base? Well, of course, God gives power to everybody, allows everybody to exist, even evil. But was the French Revolution based in God and anything godly at all? Absolutely not, but quite the opposite. That's the point. It's all about Luciferian, you know, you can be your own God. That's the ideal that came out of the French Revolution. Now, I want to look at the Jesuit origins of the French Revolution because, again, History is written by the winners, and what we are told, like if you read Wikipedia, you'd think the French Revolution was the best thing that happened in history, at least in the last 500 years, for democracy, for freedom, oh gosh, human rights, all these beautiful things that just bring a tear to your eye that everybody deserves, when in reality, it was the birth of the final system. The final system happened in 1798 with the French Revolution. That was the final system. Now, we're not there yet. But if you will understand what I'm going to tell you today and show you today, and you'll stay consistent and research on your own, and also obviously tune in because we're going to get into deeper and deeper things with this. This is deep stuff, but it's still scratching the surface somewhat because you have to piece it all together. Because we're, we're dealing with at least 200 years of history, and where we're living right now in 2023 at the time of this video, at the time of this podcast, this is, we are at the culmination of the last 200 years of history, where all of these things are finally coming to a head. And you will see the woman riding the beast. But in order for the woman to be riding the beast, there had to be certain things that happened. There had to be dialectics, problem, reaction, solution, i.e., we want a church-state union. We want that political, political religious power again that the beast enjoyed for 1260 years before the Protestant Reformation and before the French Revolution. We, we want that power again. So how are we going to do it? Well, we have to push people in one direction so that they want us to have control. That's what it's really about. And we'll get more into that in a little while. But for now, let's look at the Jesuit origins of the French Revolution. I want to introduce to you a man in Ida, Adam Weishaupt, hopefully... If you know him, if you don't, that's okay. We're going to learn about him. Early life, always a good thing to look at in Wikipedia. Weishaupt began his formal education at age seven at a Jesuit school. Oh gosh, isn't that funny? What are the coincidences? He later enrolled at the University of Ingolstadt and graduated in 1768 at the age of 20 with a doctorate of law. In 1772, he became a professor of law. After Pope Clement's suppression of the Society of Jesus, i.e. the Jesuits, in 1773, Weishaupt became professor of canon law. So he's very involved with the Vatican, a position that was held exclusively by the Jesuits until that time. Very interesting, isn't it? In 
Oh, wait a minute, there's some more stuff. Foundation of the Illuminati. On 1st of May, 1776, nice year that everybody in the, in the States knows, jo- Johann Adam Weishaupt founded the Illuminati in the electorate of Bavaria. So that's all we really need to know from Wikipedia, that Adam Weishaupt was a Jesuit-trained, very involved with Jesuits and Vatican figure. And he's the one who founded the Illuminati. Isn't that interesting? Now let's look at this next thing, which is the, it's a book called Daniel, Understanding the Dreams and Vision by Charlene Forsch and Erica Disler. It's on page 187 of this book. We're going to look at Weishaupt's plan to destroy Christianity. Now, again, this is kind of small, so I'm going to try to squint here and read it, but Adam Weishaupt was a Jesuit doctor of papal canon law at the English China University of Bavaria. And this we had just read from Wikipedia. Weishaupt and his inner circle were not atheists. They believed in a God. However, this God was not Jesus Christ, but Lucifer. Of course, all the occultists believe that Lucifer is their savior. Communism is an anti-Christian and atheistic force designed to destroy Christianity and all world governments by basically having Luciferianism take over. Um, Let's see if I can zoom in here a little bit just to read this. Okay. Adam Weishaupt determined to wipe out Christianity, not to con- not to counter it. His establishment on 1st of May, 1776 of the Illuminati planned to have the French Revolution. He planted the seeds for atheism and laid the foundation to prepare the world to receive the Pope as the world leader. What? How does that work? Well, you're going to find out in a second. He also founded the Jacobins in 1789. The design of of this plan was to enlist many world bankers and leaders into a framework. As a result, uh, the French Revolution set up a kingdom based on atheism, including the concepts of humanism, which eventually evolved into the political system of communism. All this is true. And let's see where we are. Okay, this, this, this godless kingdom of atheism in France looked independent, but was fully under the control of the papal system. Behind the scenes, the papacy pulled the strings. Today, many political and religious leaders are now puppets under the masteries and machinations of the papal-controlled secret societies. So there's a lot in this book. You you can actually check it out if you want. Again, it's called Daniel Colon, Understanding the Dreams and Vision by Charlene Forsch and Erica Drissler. And this was on page 187. There's a lot about the Jesuits, the Counter-Reformation, and their involvement in politics in the last 500 years. And so what is the point? The point is that secret societies, which were controlled ultimately still by the Vatican and Jesuits, which everybody knows, most people who are awake these days know that they control all the upper echelons of society. So everybody is being still controlled by the beast, But the point is that the beast isn't obviously in control. And it will come back into control, but it had to go through this dialectic period where communism, which seems like the opposite of Christian nationalism, which, again, think about World War II. We'll talk about this in a second. But World War II was what? You had Hitler, which was basically arm-in-arm with the Vatican. And then you had communism, which was actually started by the Jesuits. Isn't that funny? That's how, how does that get you? They play both sides, left and right. But Hitler was like a sort of quasi-Christian nationalism type of 
light world order. The communism that the Bolsheviks started was a dark world order. Now, if you know your history, the communists won. And that's, I'm not going to go farther than that, but the communists won World War II. But that was necessary. That was by design. Because communism and leftist ideology would push people eventually into wanting that, that Christian nationalist fascist state again to, to have an authority of all these values like, you know, good family values and seemingly good things. And of course they are good things, but when they are controlled by an authority such as the papacy, they are not good things. They're evil things. And so ultimately that's what this is all about. It's creating the opposite to push you in the direction that they want. And we're talking huge timetables here. This has been, again, last over 200 years that we're talking about. And so these are very long timetables, but we are coming to the head right now with all of the deep state versus, you know, uh, great awakening type of mentality where you have people who are wanting to have those traditional values again, finding themselves being drawn back to religion. Of course, where are they going to? They're going to, to Catholicism. People are watching The Chosen and downloading Hallow, the app, where you can pray and, and do all your Eucharist challenges and transubstantiation. I mean, it is just crazy. People don't see these things, but this is what's happening. People are moving back into slowly accepting the morals and the teachings of the beast because by comparison to the dark side of the globalists and communists and atheists, the light seems so appealing and this is the whole point. This is why the Pope always wears white and everybody who meets with him has to wear black to make him look like the light because that's what Satan does. Satan uses the dark to make his false light look appealing and pushing you into a light world order. The new world order is coming and it's unavoidable. It's not the globalists. The globalists are hand in hand with the people who are telling you they're against the globalists. This is the thing you have to realize. There is no truth other than Christ. This duality of globalists versus, you know, the other side, the white hats and black hats and all this nonsense. Who wears a white hat? The Pope does. Who wears black hats? The Jesuits do. So do you see what's going on? Hopefully you do. But let's take a look at some more evidence. Let's take a look at a nice little discussion I found. This is on Quora, actually. It's interesting. And the topic of this discussion is, is there actual evidence that Jesuits really helped to instigate the French Revolution? Now, you have to really dig through this because there's so many people that say, no, there's no evidence, oh, so much anti-Catholic sentiment, blah, 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 propaganda, right? So you have to dig and dig and dig, and eventually you can find somebody. Now, let's see if I can get my spot back where the heck I was. Here I am. Okay. This is a nice answer by a theological writer, and we're going to read this. Fact. Adam Weishaupt, founder of Jacobinism, a Jesuit doctor of papal canon laws at Ingolstadt University in Bavaria, had his work on Illuminism displayed at the University of Ingolstadt. Jacobinism was the driving force of the French Revolution, compared with the Bible prophecy in Revelation chapter 11. Of course, we just did that, which is the two witnesses. The goddess of reason, Fides, replaced Christianity along with the French monarchy. The Jesuits had to dispose of the monarchies because they were banned by many monarchs, and some monarchs defended a form of Protestant or Orthodox dogma. So they had to get them out of the way, and as usual, they create a conflict that wasn't needed. 
Indeed, the Jesuit order, headed by the Jesuit superior general, i.e. the Black Pope, is the most formidable enemy to religious and civil liberty that the world has probably ever seen. The Jesuits became so infamous in Europe for fomenting wars and revolutions and for assassinating heads of state that they were expelled from 83 countries, city-states, and cities by 1931, quite often by Roman Catholic monarchs. Bet you didn't know that. This is by Daryl. And these are quotes and sources to all these things, and I will link this in the comments. This is by Daryl Eckhart, editor of Tackling the Tough Topics newsletters. Many philosophers are used by, were used by the Jesuits, especially Voltaire, who was a renegade Jesuit and Freemason, to play a role in the Catholic Hegelian dialectic agenda. The philosopher Robespierre was also a leader of the Jacobin clubs. The Jacobins were, were currently terrorizing France, Burrell argued in his preface, could not have appeared out of thin air. The principal authors of the conspiracy, he claimed, were Voltaire, Jean Leron Alembert, and King Frederick of Prussia, who had secretly planned to destroy Christianity. These sophists had formed an alliance with the Freemasons, whose anti-religious conspiratorial origins burial traced back to the medieval Knights Templars. The final and most utterly evil group in this triple conspiracy, however, were the Bavarian Illuminati, under their satanic leader, Adam Weishaupt. Jacobinism had emerged out of the union of these three groups. That's by Richard Levy. Surprisingly, Napoleon Bonaparte was also a Freemason. I knew that. And if you know how they take pictures and put their hands in their uh, coats, there's plenty of pictures with Napoleon putting his hand in his coat. And it's not because he's trying to keep his hand warm. It's because he's a Freemason. It all, all roads lead to Rome, don't they? Though this may be a beneficial synthesis on emphasizing human rights, as we may use today in the USA Constitution, this was a Jesuit scheme to replace God with humanitarianism human rights, and social justice. As of today, they are planning to use climate change to, pu to push forward the Jesuit agenda of ecumenism. Climate change is not about the climate. Climate change is about uniting the world under the papacy. And they're going to do, do so through climate activism, having a day of rest on Sunday, having a green Sunday movement, and unifying everybody under these moralities that are subjective to the environment instead of having the gospel and the Ten Commandments, they're going to make their own climate Ten Commandments. It's just like they did at the Copta 27 or whatever number they're on recently, where they went up to Mount Sinai. It wasn't the real Mount Sinai, but they went up Mount Sinai and smashed these fake commandments that are the climate commandments. And so they're issuing, the, just like they did in the French Revolution. Do you see a pattern? The French Revolution, what do we saw? with the picture. It's the two commandments, basically the two tablets. That's what it's playing off of. It's parodying the Ten Commandments. And they did that again with COP27. Again, it might be 23. I don't remember the darn number right now, but the recent COP summit, where it's all about the environment. It's, oh, we're issuing these Ten Climate Commandments. It's all about the climate, social justice, not about the gospel. It's about worldly things that everybody can align. We all have the same nature, the same climate. We all kind of believe in the same God, so... Why not? See how, see how these things work? It's not about the climate. Who are the Jesuits? Let's take a look. Some famous quotes from John Adams, Marquis de Lafayette, Abraham Lincoln, Samuel Morse, all these different people, Napoleon even. Let's see what they have to think about the Jesuits. My history of the Jesuits is not eloquently written, but it is supported by unquestionable authorities. 
and is very particular and very horrible. The Jesuit order's restoration in 1814 by Pope Pius is indeed a step towards darkness, cruelty, despotism, and death. I do not like the appearance of the Jesuits. If ever there was a body of men who merited eternal damnation on earth and in hell, it is the Society of Ignatius Loyola. That was by John Adams. It is my opinion that if the liberties of this country, the United States of America, are destroyed, it will be by the subtlety of the Roman Catholic Jesuit priests. For they are the most crafty, dangerous enemies to civil civil and religious liberty. They have instigated most of the wars of Europe. Marquis de Lafayette, who was basically in the American Continental Army. Famous, famous historical figure. He was a French statesman and a general. The war, i.e. the American Civil War, would have never been possible without the sinister influence of the Jesuits, Abraham Lincoln. Isn't that interesting? That's something to look into. The Jesuits are a secret society, a sort of Masonic order with a super added feature of revolting odiousness and a thousand times more dangerous. Samuel Morse. The author undertakes to show that a conspiracy against liberties of this republic is now in full action under the direction of the wily Prince Metternich of Austria, who, knowing the impossibility of obliterating this troublesome example of a great and free nation by force of arms, is attempting to accomplish his object through the agency of an army of Jesuits. The array of facts and arguments going to prove the existence of such a conspiracy will astonish any man who opens the book with the same incredulity as we did. That's by Samuel Morse in one of his books. The, Je- the Jesuits are a military organization, not a religious order. Their chief is a general of an army, not the mere father abbot of a monastery. Keep this in mind as we go into the art of war. Keep all this in mind. This is by Napoleon. And the aim of this organization is power. Power in its most despotic exercise. Absolute power. Universal power. Power to control the world by the volition of a single man i.e. the Black Pope, the superior general of the Jesuits. Jesuitism is the most absolute of despotisms, and at the same time, the greatest and most enormous of abuses. Now, these are some great similarities between the Marxist Revolution and the French Revolution in in relation to the Jesuit influence that they both had. Number one, both revolutions were based on communist writings of Freemasons, Voltaire and Marx. Did not the Jesuits perfect communism on their reductions in Paraguay? Number two, both revolutions plundered the state churches. Number three, both revolutions ended the monarchies. Were not the Jesuits enemies of both the Bourbon and Romanov dynasties? Had not both monarchies expelled the Jesuits from their countries? That's interesting. Both revolutions produced Jesuit republics. Republics in form, but absolute monarchies in power. Both revolutions declared atheism as the religion of state. Evidenced by their deeds are not the Jesuits truly atheists. Six, both revolutions carried out a reign of terror by an inquisitional secret police. Now, we know the Jesuits influenced the Inquisition, the actual Inquisition, whatever, five, six hundred years ago, but it all goes back to the same people. Number seven, both revolutions resulted in military dictators who punished the enemies of the Jesuits. Did not the Jesuits benefit, even though Napoleon and Stalin, in deceiving the nations, openly banned the order from France and Russia? This is by Eric von Phelps in Vatican Assassins, one of his books. So we know the Jesuits suppressed, were suppressed by the papacy in 1773. We'll, we'll look at how this... So what are the Jesuits to gain by manipulating of a revolution? Well, they were suppressed in 1773 by the papacy. They were kicked out by a lot of countries. And 
we know in 1798, the papacy was mortally wounded because Louis Alexander Berthier, Napoleon's chief of staff, under orders from the Jesuits, took Pope Pius VI captive, and he died in prison August in 1799. So this was a mortal wound, seeming mortal wound, for the beast. But then a few years later, in 1814, the Jesuits were reestablished. A papal bull was issued called Solicito Omnium Ecclesiarum by the succeeding pope, and Napoleon kidnapped the succeeding pope and held him hostage for five years. The historian Emmanuel Josephson wrote, Why Sopton and his fellow Jesuits cut off the income to the Vatican by launching and leading the French Revolution, by directing Napoleon's conquest of Catholic Europe, and by eventually having Napoleon throw Pope Pius VII in jail at Avignon until he agreed, as the price of his release, to reestablish the Jesuit order. This Jesuit war on the Vatican was terminated by the Congress of Vienna and by a secret 1822 Treaty of Verona. The papal bull established the Society of Jesus after its suppression in the year 1773. During the order's suppression from 1773 to 1814 by Pope Clement, General Ricci created the Illuminati with his soldier, Adam Weishaupt, the father of modern communism, who in his Jacobins, with his Jacobins, conducted the French Revolution. Years later, Jesuit General Lidachowski with his Bolsheviks, conducted the Russian Revolution in 1917, it being identical to the upheaval of 1789. So I want you to take all of this in. There's a lot to there's a lot to take in here, but I want you to take all of it in because it's the same thing happening today. Today we see the counter-revolution to the left and the deep state and the big bag deep state is being revealed and all this darkness and evil and then there's the white hats or the good guys. There are no good guys, by the way, but there are the seemingly good guys that are coming in to rescue us with good old-fashioned family values and conservatism and nationalism. Where do you think this is going? It's just the same thing except in the opposite direction because it's time for the beast to take power again, just like Revelation says. People are moving into a nationalist, Christian national Christian nationalism is on the rise. It's really scary. We're going to get into all of this very deeply, very deeply. So I really hope you stay tuned. I really do in the next couple of weeks. But <clears throat> either way, this is the same pattern. The same pattern that happened in the French Revolution is the same people that happened in the Bolshevik Revolution and all these other revolutions throughout history, especially in the last hundred years. In we see Israel, remember Israel, the father of Zionism, met with the Pope. Now, why do you think that was the case? Well, I can probably tell you why. I wouldn't be surprised that Zionism and Israel having a state is vital for the Jesuits and the papacy to have their fleshly, futuristic interpretation of the Bible come true. Do you see what happens here? They go hand in hand so that they can give Israel a state, and that way materialize the false eschatology that they interpreted back 500 years ago. Remember, 500 years ago when the Protestants identified the papacy as the beast, what was the problem with that? Well, first off, it's very obvious if you read the prophecy and you're not reading with fleshly, worldly eyes, it's very obvious. There's no other power in history that even comes close. But if they can convince you to read the Bible with fleshly eyes and worldly things, looking for a physical temple and a physical man, Antichrist, that walks into that temple and declares himself to be God. And they're just like, 
two actual people in Jerusalem, they're going to get killed. All these things are so distracting. But if they can create that and materialize that, then they can take take the eyes off of the beast as it comes to power. And that's really what's happening. And that's why the father of Zionism met with the Pope. And not a few decades later, Israel became a state. And you see all their revolutions throughout the Middle East and so much. I mean, it's, let's put it this way. When it says Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, that is a very accurate description. And the more you study your history, the more, the more you know what I'm talking about. So, in Revelation 13, 3, we know that it seemed to have a mortal wound. We see the, <clears throat> the first beast that comes out of the sea that John sees is the papacy, which relates to the little horn power in Daniel that comes out of the fourth beast. Now, this beast seemed to have a mortal wound. It didn't actually get a mortal wound. It seemed to have a mortal wound. And that's what happened with the, with the papacy. It seemed like the papacy was over. But in actuality, this was a, a fake dial. It was a fake hit to the papacy. It was a faint, right? It was fainting, meaning it was, it was pretending or it was orchestrating something. Now, of course, this is a two-headed snake, right? All these people are occultists. They believe in the Kabbalah. They believe in occultism. They worship duality through their Baphomet and through all of their occult practices. And some go the light side, some go the dark side, but they're always warring with each other. And this is exactly what we're seeing right now. There are no good, that's why I said there's no good guys. It's just the light side versus the dark side. The light side is not the good guys. That's the false light of Lucifer. It's, you know, humanitarianism and Luciferianism versus Satanism. The Bible has a precedent for this through... um, Baal worship and golden idol worship, right? So you had all these different battles when kings like Jehu, King Jehu came and killed Jezebel. King Jehu was an idolater. He got rid of Jezebel who was sacrificing to Moloch, but then they built golden calves and basically worshiped those. So it seemed like he was the good guy, but he was just a different kind of bad guy. That's all it really was. And so the same thing with this. If you understand history, There's nothing good about the French Revolution. There's nothing good about what's happening today. It seems like we're moving towards the light. But remember, these people believe in dark to light. Their whole thing that they're doing now is one giant initiation system for the world to come into the false light of Lucifer. And that's exactly what's happening. And people are buying it. People think that the white hats are in control, that people are going to see a new financial system and everything's going to be fixed. We're going to be saved by our materialistic, worldly pursuits. There's only one person that can save you in history, and his name is Jesus. And if you don't have a relationship with him, then you won't be saved. So hopefully you do, and I pray that you do. But in either case, the mortal wound that seemed to happen was a diversion. It was a tactic Because once the mortal wound happened, the dialectic came about between right and left. This is what happened. It was the creation of atheism, liberalism, communism, so that the dark could now outline the need for the light. The light was in control. The lights, I know, again, when I say light, I don't mean good guys. I mean the false light of Lucifer through the papacy and through Luciferianism, which is basically Catholicism. It's a complete bastardization and blasphemy of the gospel. It's horrible. 
Now, it doesn't mean if you're Catholic, you're a horrible person. It means that the institution is an antichrist institution, and you need to get out. You need to get out and renounce it, get out so you don't share in the punishments of Mystery Babylon. But all of this was created to bring back the papacy in full control at some point in the future, because two sides that are warring against each other are actually not warring against each other. Just like Republicans and Democrats are two wings of the same bird, in the end, they're shaking hands behind the scenes, guys. There's no such thing as people who care about you or your family. They don't. They care about themselves. And they, they are, in their occult practices, they have to stand on one side of the aisle or another. And they choose. And sometimes they flip, but they have to stand on that side and, and sort of have this duality so they can bring about their agenda. That's what it's all about. It's about bringing about an agenda because you need both sides. And they play both sides so they can control the outcome. It's called a dialectic. But this is what happened again in, in World War II, and it hasn't changed. I want you to compare what happened in World War II. Again, the bad guy, I mean, they're both bad, but the dark side won World War II. Hitler was the light side. He was a light side occultist. He was hand in hand with the Vatican. The Pope loved Hitler. And, you know, then you had, on the other side, you had the communists, the Bolsheviks, who were started by the Jesuits. Again, black versus white, dark versus light. It's the same, same thing. But I want you to compare what happened in World War II. If you know your history, if you don't, I highly recommend looking into it and don't look at Wikipedia. Do some research. Learn about World War II. But compare that to what's happening now with Christian Russia fighting for Christian nationalism and good Christian values, fighting the satanic Ukrainians and the satanic deep state. Do you see the same thing except it's flipped? That's what's happening. The deep state and the globalists are the evil Satanists, and then the light is coming in to defeat the dark. And really what's happening is the tide is turning to the opposite direction. It's all according to plan. If you know what they believe about the Kabbalah with the two paths that eventually meet at the top in the crown, at the synthesis where the two paths become one, this is what's happening. We're, we're living that out right now. We're at a momentous point in history when all this is coming together. It's a crazy time to be alive. But what is this designed for? It's designed to push people into seeing traditional views, traditional sources of authority, traditional moral authority as good. Now, I'm not saying that Christianity is a problem. I'm saying that institutionalized Christianity is the problem. There is nothing wrong with traditions such as, you know, having worship together. Of course, those are traditions. But traditional roles, i.e. the church is the authority. The Catholic church is the moral authority. That's what this is moving towards. Because eventually, all the churches will unite and bow down to the Pope. Orthodoxy will unite the Protestants will unite. Oh, it's it's all coming together. It sounds crazy to say that, but when I say that, I can back it up, and I will back it up, not in this episode, but I will back it up in the future. In either case, that's what we're living through. Now, let's take a look at the art of war. I love talking about this because a lot of people don't realize that there's such a relationship between the art of war and the French Revolution, the Jesuits, the dialectic of the beast coming out of the bottomless pit, it's all so fascinating, really is. 
Now, if you look in Wikipedia, the Art of War, it says that the Art of War was written between 475 and 221 BC. And, you know, it was written by such and such and such and such. Now, I'm going to ask you this. Do you know the history of Shakespeare? Do you know if he actually was a real person or he was made up? Do you know his connection to the Jesuits? Do you know about book and art fabrication in the Renaissance? There's a lot of interesting things out there. And the more you study, I'm going to put it this way, history is a lie. History as we've been told is largely a lie. There's a lot of falsities in history. And so I take the date of the art of war as something to take with a grain of salt. I don't think it was written in the time that they say it was written. And the reason I don't think that is because it was first translated into French by a man named Jean-Joseph Marie Amiot, who was a French astronomer to the emperor of China. Now, Mr. Amiot was also a Jesuit. Isn't that interesting? And he translated into French in 1772. This was six years before 1798. So six years, you know how they like their numbers. Six is one of their favorite numbers. Six years before 1798, when basically the mortal wound to the papacy happened, this book was just innocently translated into French by a Jesuit from Chinese. And we know that a year later, after this book was translated, the Jesuits were banned in, 17, in 1773. So all of that is very interesting and warrants a little further investigation, don't you think? I think it does. Now, there's a book written by a man named Malachi Martin called The Jesuits, The Society of Jesus and the Betrayal of the Roman Catholic Church. And on page 490, there's an interesting little little thing here. I'm going to read it to you. Whether by intent or not, Segundos is the ultimate answer of Father General Kolvenovac and his Jesuits to the continued and continual dissatisfaction of popes with the new society. Now, what's it talking about here? The, the ultimate answer is talking about a book that this man, Segundo, wrote, and it's by Juan Luis Segundo. We'll talk about that in just a second. That the Jesuit general and his Roman staff sanctioned such a book, very important statement, makes it in essence their answer to the to John Paul and to anyone else who would alter the course of the Jesuit order as set during the two decades since GC 31 and the emergence of Pedro Arupe. Now, the thing we want to pick out here is this, that the Jesuit general and his Roman staff sanctioned such a book. What book are they talking about? Well, this Jesuit named Juan Luis Segundo wrote a book called Theology in the Church, it was in 1986, a response to Cardinal Ratzinger and a warning to the church. So it's, they're Again, the Jesuits in the Vatican's dark first light. Two heads of the same snake, but they're they're always fighting with each other. And eventually they get to, you know, the, the crowning achievement, which we're on the cusp of at the point in time right, right now in history. But throughout history, they, they haven't had the best relationships with one another. The Jesuits are kind of their own little military order. And so the, this Juan Luis Segundo guy wrote a book, and it was it was a little bit of a controversial book. And he wrote it, but in this book, Malachi Martin, who supposedly was part of the Jesuits, I'm guessing, I don't remember if he was part of the Jesuits or he was heavily involved with them in some way or form. But either way, it says that the, the, the father general, their, their Jesuit general, sanctioned this book. 
What does this mean? That means that when a Jesuit publishes a book, you cannot publish, the Jesuits are under a strict oath of obedience to the Jesuit general. It is, remember, it's extremely despotic. It's very, very controlled situation. So if a Jesuit publishes a book, it is sanctioned, approved of, by the Jesuit general, meaning the Jesuit general knows everything that's happening everywhere at all times. And if a Jesuit publishes a book, you can bet your butt that it is sanctioned by the Jesuit general. So now why is that important? Well, it's very important because if the Jesuit who translated the art of war a year before the Jesuits were banned by the Pope, do you think that the Jesuit general, remember it's a military organization, Keep that word general in mind as we go into the art of war and unpack it. Don't you think that the Jesuit general would sanction such a book? Of course he has to. It's published by one of his Jesuits. So this is a very telling and very interesting thing because that means the Jesuit general, the one in charge of the organization, was 100% in support of this book being translated, never mind into French and how that connected to the French Revolution and everything I've just shared with you so far in this episode. But let's look at the art of war. Let's jump into that, and we're just going to go through some key items here. This is chapter one. We're just going to go through the different chapters. I want you to see what this book is really about. Everybody's talking about, oh my gosh, such a brilliant book. And it's really, it's brilliantly antichrist is what it is. But these are just different sections. This is in chapter one, section 18. All warfare is based on deception. Who do you know that would say that? Would God say that? Would God say that warfare is based on deception? No, God doesn't need to. God is fully powerful. But somebody else needs to, and that's the devil, the father of lies, who all deception comes from. So that's that's our first real red flag that we should pay attention to. Now in the next section, 19, it says, Hence, when able to attack, we must seem unable. Keep all of the things in mind that I'm reading to you, if you're listening to this or if you're watching, keep all of this in mind in context of what we just talked about with the mortal wound that it seemed to have a mortal wound, with the Jesuits being control of the French Revolution, with the dialectics to bring everything back into the Mother Church. Keep all of that in mind as the subtext and context for what I'm reading. Hence, when able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must seem inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. When far away, we must make him believe we are near. Section 26. Now the general who wins a battle makes many calculations in his temple ere the the battle is fought. Temple is a place. I highlight this for a reason because temple, a general doesn't have a temple. Generals have barracks. They have buildings. They have castles. A temple is where sacrifices are made. A temple is a religious place. What general do you know that is a military general that also has a temple? There's only, an, there's only one obvious answer to that, and that's the Jesuit general. Very interesting, isn't it? But let's move on. This is, I believe, chapter 2, Waging War. Section 15. Hence, a wise general makes a point of foraging on the enemy. One cartload of the enemy's provisions is equivalent to 20 of one's own, and likewise a single pickle of his pro- of his provender is equivalent to 20 from one's own store. So deception, stealing, basically using everything you can, 
Section 17. Therefore, in chariot fighting, when ten or more chariots have been taken, those should be rewarded who took the first. Our own flag should be substituted for those of the enemy, and the chariots mingled and used in conjunction with ours. The captured soldiers should be kindly treated and kept. This is called using the conquered foe to augment one's own strength. Very interesting, isn't it? In light of all the secret societies, all of the things that we see in modern day. And if you're awake, this will mean ever more, so much more to you. If you're not awake, if this is the first time you've heard this, I strongly suggest that you stop watching the news. Chapter 3 of The Art of War. Let's see, let's see what we got here. Section 11. Now the general in is the bulwark of the state. If the bulwark is complete at all points, the state will be strong. If the bulwark is defective, the state will be weak. Remember this whole thing about the Jesuit being the all absolute power and control and how the Jesuits created communism with a basically a dictator model, which mirrors what they have in the Jesuit order. Isn't that interesting? I think it's, it's just so interesting. All this is profoundly interesting. Chapter four, verse one, Sun Tzu said, <laughs> right, Sun Tzu. I wonder who Sun Tzu really was. The good fighters of old first put themselves beyond the possibility of defeat and then waited for an opportunity of defeating the enemy. To secure ourselves against defeat lies in our own hands, but the opportunity of defeating the enemy is provided by the enemy himself. Isn't it funny how now everybody's talking about the the dark side, the globalists, the deep state, they're they're defeating themselves. They're basically, you know, going to implode and all this kind of stuff. The the, the legacy media is going to implode and blah blah blah. This is all from the art of war. But again, what is the art of war really about? So that's the thing to remember. That is the thing to remember, my friends. And who wrote it? Section 12. Hence, his victories bring him neither reputation for wisdom nor credit for courage. So the the general who wins, nobody knows who he is. Nobody knows he even exists. And that's certainly the case with the Jesuit general, isn't it? Nobody even knows who he is. And you can look him up and probably do the research, but he's not somebody you see. You see the Pope. You see the white hat. You see the white general. You don't see the black Pope. Chapter 5, Energy, verse 1. Sun Tzu said, the, contr- the control of a large force is the same principle as the control of a few men. It is merely a question of dividing up their numbers. Interesting, isn't it? How, again, the Jesuit societies reflected themselves very plainly in communism. Weak points and strong, chapter 6, verse 1. Whoever is first in the field and awaits the coming of the enemy will be fresh for the fight. Whoever is second in the field and has to hasten to battle will arrive exhausted. Again, these are, you know, these are tactics that sound pretty, pretty evil, if you ask me. Oh, divine art of subtlety and secrecy. This is verse 9. Through you, we learn to be invisible. Through you, inaudible. Divine art of subtlety and secrecy. What did Jesus say? He said, I said nothing in secret. Did anything that Jesus do, was it any of it secret? No, it was out in the open. He was completely open. So when the book says, oh, divine art of subtlety and secrecy, whose art is that? Remember how it makes me think of the the sorcerers that Moses encountered with Pharaoh and how they had, had the secret arts that they had, their divine secret arts, that they could kind of replicate some of the things that Moses were doing. 
of course, not as powerful, but they had their own secret arts. And we know who empowered those arts. It certainly wasn't God. It was the the dark side. And that's the side you don't want to be on. But that's a very telling ver- phrase. If 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 you remember anything from this book, remember that phrase, oh, divine art of, of secrecy and subtlety. I mean, it can't get any clearer who wrote this book. Verse 1, Sun Tzu said, this is chapter 7, in a war, the general receives his commands from the sovereign. Okay, so there's the sovereign and there's a general. Now we have this little duality, just like we have with the Pope, that you see, that's sovereign, and the Black Pope, which is kind of in the background, and he's the general. He's also called the general. Isn't that interesting? So we know that the general receives his orders from the Pope, and ultimately he has to obey them. But at the same time, he doesn't. We'll read that in a little bit. Verse 19. Let your plans be dark and impenetrable as night, and when you move, fall like a thunderbolt. Who is dark? Who who has plans that are dark and secret? That's the devil. And who is also resembled by a thunderbolt? Hmm. Isn't that interesting? We just keep seeing more and more interesting things. So many more interesting things in here. I, and I only highlighted a few things. There, You could probably find a lot more in this book. Chapter 8, Variations of Tactics, verse 1. In war, the general receives his commands from the sovereign, collects his army, and concentrates his forces. Okay. Verse 3. There are roads which must not be followed, armies which must not be attacked, towns which must not be besieged, positions which must not be contested. Here's the good part. Commands of the sovereign which must not be obeyed. Uh Uh-oh. Interesting, isn't it? So you have the sovereign, who is sovereign, but then you have the general who is kind of like his own little sovereign when it suits the agenda. So you have this general that is, in his own way, sovereign, that obeys the sovereign, that his goal is to bring things back to the sovereign, but at the same time can fight against the orders of the sovereign if the agenda requires it. And so you have a very interesting situation, very interesting situation. Let's see if there's anything more in here that I've highlighted. Probably oh, there are. Okay, this is, I believe, chapter 9, section 42. If soldiers are punished before they have grown attached to you, they will not prove submissive. And unless submissive, then will be practically useless. Therefore, soldiers must be treated in the first instance with humanity, but kept under control by means of iron discipline. This is some very manipulative stuff, very gaslighting type of stuff. Chapter 10. Verse 23, if fighting, insu- if fighting is sure to result in victory, then you must fight, even though the ruler forbids it. There it is again. If fighting will not result in victory, then you must not fight, even at the ruler's bidding. So it's all about the agenda. The, the general is sovereign in his own way, basically. And we see that perfectly reflected in the Jesuits in the Vatican. This is chapter 11, I believe. Verse 35, it is the business of a general to be quiet and thus ensure secrecy, upright and just, and thus maintain order. He must be able to mystify his officers and men by false reports and appearances, and thus keep them in total ignorance. Gosh, isn't that something? That is just secret societies 101. The people at the bottom have no clue what's going on. You have to go through different layers of dark initiations and horrible things for you to know a little more. Verse 60, success in warfare is gained by carefully accommodating ourselves to the enemy's purpose. 
Now think about this one in context of Protestant America and all the things that you see today with mega churches and you know false gospels, the materialistic prosperity gospel, hyper charismatic religions, and all these things that are happening that are that have infiltrated Christianity and Protestantism specifically. Remember, the Counter Reformation is still going on. The goal of the Reformation was to separate from the church and to get back to the truth. The goal of the Counter-Reformation is what? It's the opposite. It's to bring people back into the mother church. And you're going to see that because it's already happening. And there's a whole episode I'm going to dedicate to that. But it's happening. And this verse right here, success in warfare is gained by carefully accommodating ourselves to the enemy's purpose. Who's the enemy? Who's the real enemy? It's Jesus Christ for them. Christianity, true Christianity, true biblical Christianity. And so they're carefully accommodating themselves to the enemy's purpose, recruiting people. You see so many false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, false prophets, and treating them nicely, putting them in their secret societies. Billy Graham, all these people, they're all in secret societies. Who do you think they actually have allegiance to? Jesus Christ? Or somebody else? The more you know, the more you know. Let's see if there's any more in this. I don't think so. Oh, there are a few more. Okay, this is chapter... 13 now, the use of spies. Ooh, this is a good one. Verse 7, hence the use of spies, or of whom there are five classes, local spies, inward spies, converted spies, doomed spies, surviving spies. When these five kinds of spy all at work, none can discover the secret system. This is called the divine manipulation of the threads. There it is again with this divine dark stuff. It is the sovereign's most precious faculty. Having local spies means employing the services of the inhabitants of a district. Now let's back up one more time. It is a sovereign's most precious faculty. What is the sovereign's most precious faculty? The divine manipulation of the threads. Interesting, isn't it? So interesting. The Kabbalah, the two threads of the Kabbalah, the yin and the yang, the black and the white, the dark and the light. The two threads, manipulating the two threads through chaos and order, order to chaos, dark to light. If you know these things, you know what I'm talking about. Verse 10, having inward spies, making use of officials of the enemy. Again, think about a context of the world we live in today. Having converted spies, getting hold of the enemy's spies and using them for our own purposes. Having doomed spies, doing certain things openly for purposes of deception and allowing our own spies to know of them and report them to the enemy. How many people have been suicided? How many people have been taken care of? that were at one point part of the system, but then they were killed off. Isn't that interesting? Surviving spies finally are those who bring back news from the enemy's camp. Hence it is with with none in the whole army as more intimate relations to be maintained than with spies. Gosh, what a what a profound book, isn't it? The enemy spies who have come to spy on us must be sought out, tempted with bribes. Who does the temptation? Who does the temptation throughout Scripture? It's the devil. The devil is the one who tempts people. Led away and comfortably housed. Thus, they will become converted spies and available for our service. Such a manipulative, evil text. Such an evil text. And I think this is, this is it. Yeah, this is it. So, gosh, a lot to take in. But look, The Art of War is an Antichrist book. That's your 
your main gist to take home. And again, there was a lot of things in there that point. There's probably way more. I just highlighted a few of them. But there's a lot in there that really points to an antichrist spirit that wrote that book. And it's pretty obvious. If you have discernment, it's very obvious. Now, the first translation we know was by a Jesuit. And it was a year before the Jesuits were banned and six years before the French Revolution where the papacy received the mortal wound, the seemingly mortal wound, which the mortal wound was healed and it will be healed politically and, and religiously very soon within our lifetimes. We know that the Jesuit general approved the book because he had to through the oath of obedience. We know that the book is probably about the Jesuit general. I don't believe that Sun Tzu was an actual character. If you know anything about history, if you know about, again, Shakespeare and the Jesuits, look into that. The Jesuits are the masters of entertainment and learning against learning. The whole point of getting you so distracted with entertainment and sports games and movies and Hollywood is to get you to be stupid and to not study the Word of God, to not be having discernment, but to be seduced and distracted so that you don't see the polit- the spiritual political realities that are happening. But the, Je- the Jesuit general is probably the general that is the main character of the book. And they're basically, it's their occult way of revealing before they do something. If you know that, then it's pretty obvious. The, the Bible says that the beast appeared to have a mortal wound. And we know that this was right in line with the art of war. When they want to appear, when they are strong, they must appear weak. When they're weak, they must appear strong. So this was right in line with the art of war. This whole dialectic that started was because they were losing grasp on the, on the Protestant Reformation. And so they had to create this dialectic that would bring people back into the mother church. And it would take hundreds of years and many wars and conflicts and political shufflings. It's crazy how much they plan. This is all these people do. They just plan and scheme these long timetables of evil things and bring them about. It's really crazy. But God will use it for the good, and God will judge them in the end. So we can be sure of that. But look, the dialectic of liberalism versus conservatism, i.e. right versus left, that's when this whole thing began in 1798. This was created by the French Revolution. So the French Revolution wasn't this momentous, oh my gosh, human rights and democracy. That is a lie. The French Revolution, really what it did is it began this dialectic of left versus right, of atheism and liberalism and all the things that you know about the left today versus right, conservatism, nationalism. And these two things are struggling against each other. Atheism and communism versus nationalism, red versus blue, right versus left. Why? To bring about the new world order. Now, the new world order is not going to be a communist state. It's going to be a nationalist state. It's going to be a fascist state because that's what the beast was in the days of old. When Constantine made the church-state religion in 321 AD, and then the papacy took control of that church-state union in 538 AD, it was a fascist nationalist empire. And this is exactly what we're moving towards, a church-state union, a religio-political union where the papacy has political control and moral authoritative control. But in order to do that, you have to make the thing that will bounce people into that reality. They're not going to accept it just like that. 
They're going to accept it as the solution to something very dark and evil and the big bad boogeyman of communism. Do you see how this is shaping up? Gosh, I hope you see. Because this is a dialectic, and the goal, again, is to bring you to the light, to the false light of Lucifer, which is the ultimate control of the papacy. So, remember the art of war. Remember that the general's goal is to serve the sovereign. Now, the general is very independent. He's kind of his own sovereign, but ultimately, he works for the sovereign. The black pope will bring people back to the white pope. And the Bible mentions many times, in fact, over 16 times, not to swerve to the right or to the left. I think that's very interesting. It really is interesting to say, don't swerve to the right or to the left, but to keep the narrow road, right? Christ told us to to watch and keep careful to be on the the narrow road. And today you have things pulling you either to the left or to the right. You have on the left side, you have communism, atheism, liberalism, all this stuff. And on the right, you have Christian nationalism, which it's too... It, too, is a deception. It's a worldly interpretation of the Bible. And it's exactly what the church, the mother church, wants. It wants that system. It wants people to think that it's a good system. And, you know, all these things that we talked about, we will talk about, actually, with America. You know, I, I'm i a Christian. You're a Christian. If you're listening to this, probably. We're conservative by nature because the Bible is conservative. But Republican, Right? Having being a Republican, also the Republican Party has nothing to do with Christianity, even though they parade around like they do. And it seems like, oh, good old Christian values that this country is built on. The U.S. was not built on Christian values, and I intend to prove it to you very thoroughly. The U.S. was built on, now, it depends if you count the Puritans or the Founding Fathers. I'm looking at the Founding Fathers. The Puritans were Christians. They were Protestants. But very quickly after coming to the United States, or I should say Americas, because it wasn't the United States at the time, that got taken over by the Illuminati, the Enlightenment thinkers, the, the, all the things that you read about from the French, that we looked at from the French Revolution. All the founding fathers were not Christians. They didn't like Christianity. They were Luciferians. And we're going to look at that in very in-depth in a future episode. But this whole idea of America being a Christian nation it's not true. America is not a Christian nation. It will, again, seem like a Christian nation, but what do we know from Revelation about a beast that comes out of the earth, meaning a place that's not very populated, and it looks like a lamb, meaning Christianity, but it speaks like a dragon, meaning it legislates satanically, luciferian Well, I don't know how the, well, I don't know what the adjective for Luciferian. Luciferian? Yeah. It legislates Luciferian. That is exactly what happened through the United States. The United States is a Luciferian country. It is the light that will help bring people back to the Mother Church. Now, this is, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. There's a lot of things we'll talk about in the future. Like I said, we'll get deep into it. If you haven't subscribed to my website, please do so, danceoflife.com, so that way we can stay in touch and I can share these things with you just in case that YouTube or whichever decides to click the ban button. But you never know. Hopefully not. Hopefully they'll let us speak, but you never know. Ultimately, I hope you learned something today. I hope it's opened up your mind. I hope it's given you some discernment because the things we talked about today, we're going to be building on in future episodes. And it's some deep stuff. 
And the more you study these things, the more you realize just how much deception is in the world right now with this whole Israel thing, the whole third temple thing, and who is really coming to power. And the whole great awakening versus great reset thing, this is just a dialectic to push you into the thing that seems right, but is actually death. And there's a verse in the Bible that says exactly that. There's a way that seems right to a man, but actually leads to death. I forget the the exact number now, but that's what it says. So there's a way that seems right, which is this glorious return to nationalism and conservative values. Who is going to be the moral authority for those conservative values? It's going to be the church. It's going to be the Catholic church. And it's going to seem like a lamb, but it will speak like a dragon. The whole system will be evil, even though it will seem glorious. And oh, we we defeated the globalists. We defeated the dark. We're in the new age now. We're in the age of Aquarius, the golden age. Except it's going to be the golden age of Lucifer. And if you don't bow down, you'll be killed. So all that is coming up next. Hey, what a thing to look forward to. But remember, the story, the ending of the story is good. Christ will return in our lifetimes. I do believe so. And even if he doesn't, we know, or if we don't make it alive to that point, we know that to live or to die is gain because Jesus has saved us. Jesus is the truth. He will be victorious in the end, and we're going to live forever with him in a world that we can't even imagine how beautiful it will be. So all of this stuff, it's interesting to learn. It's a little scary. It's a little crazy to think that, man, I'm going to be alive to see all this. But remember, you're getting front row seats to the main event of history, main events of history. This is crazy. All of this is coming to a head in the next decade, I believe, very quickly very quickly. So keep your eyes open. Stay close to Christ. Pray often. Pray regularly. Give thanks. Live one day at a time. And God bless. I hope to see see you next time. Make sure you subscribe on my website, danceoflife.com, so we stay in touch. And have a great rest of your day. We'll see you soon.